Uh, as um, Pastor John said, my wife and I have been here for about two years now, and uh, I want to tell you how much I appreciate Pastor John and the, the worship teams in this church. Uh, for those of you that have been coming to Calvary for 20, 25 years, I hope you know how gifted and blessed you are with, with these teams that come every Sunday to help usher us from the the chaos of our world into the throne room of God. And uh, it, it's just amazing. The teams here had a huge uh, influence on why we ended up coming and staying here and calling Calvary Chapel our home. So I feel like after worship, um, you know, this morning, like I've already had church. And um, so thank you for not amen in that because I have some things to say yet. It's not over yet, but it could be. If that was all we had, it would have been more than enough, right? So... Uh, what a blessing to be here with you guys. Thanks for letting me be here. Pastor Bob is away this week. He's actually sent me a text yesterday where he's down listening to Ravi Zacharias. I'm like, really? You're listening to Ravi, and then you make all these people listen to me. <laughs> so pray for me. We'll get through this. I believe we will. We got through it once already today. Um, so it was January of 2018. Just the, the, the Calvary Chapel men's conference before the last one. And Pastor Bob spoke on 10 things I know about spiritual growth. And, uh, you know, it's pretty awesome because Bob's a no-nonsense guy. I mean, he just throws these points out. And I'm like, whoo, yeah, that was, whew, that, was, that was good. Yeah, so point number three, join and be known in a prevailing church. So, wow. Ever really heard prevailing church? Put together that way. I mean, that's what the church should be, but are they really for the most part? Be known and join, a, join and be known in a prevailing church. Prevailing churches, he said, are kingdom-minded. He quoted Craig Rochelle, who says, we're going to do everything short of sin to win people to Christ. So there is a line. <laughs> we'll march right up to it, but we will not cross it. Uh, but we, you know, the heartbeat of the prevailing church is for people to get into relationship with living God. And finally, he said, we are to be playing offense. You know, and I thought about my years in ministry, my years in church, and I thought, you know what, I'm not sure that I was part of a prevailing church. Not that we didn't do good things, not that we didn't reach some folks, but that's a strong phrase to me. Like Jesus said, in Matthew, he's talking to Peter, and he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if the gates of hell are not to prevail against the church, then the inverse should be true. The church should be prevailing against the gates of hell. Now, the gates to any city represent the strength of that city. The city is only as strong as the gates. Jesus is saying the church should be going after the gates of hell. We should prevail against the gates of hell. Even the very gates, the things that represent the strength of the kingdom of darkness will not be able to withstand the prevailing church. I think that was really powerful. So I just thought about, well, what would be, what would be some of the features of a prevailing church? I came up with just a few to talk about this morning. This is not exhaustive by any means, but number one, the prevailing church prioritizes the centrality of the gospel. In other words, front and center is the fact that there's a cross, that God sent his son 
to reach into the hearts of his children and call them back into relationship with himself. Now, some of you today may be here, you've, you've been in Christ for a long time, but maybe you're not in Christ for a long time. Maybe you're just checking it out. Maybe you're just seeking. Maybe you're kind of keeping a distance, but you're interested to see what this is all about. And what it's all about is that our sin, our sinful life, our, our insistence to live our life alone and on our terms has separated us from a holy God who says no sin will be in my presence. God launches the great rescue. He sends his son into the world to pay the price for our sin, that if we will trust Christ and say, Lord, I give up. Me following myself hasn't worked out all that well. And I want to repent of my sin. I want to accept you into my life. When that happens, there's something super that happens in the unseen world as God transports a human eternal spirit from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus promises us that when we come to him and make him king of our life, we will enjoy him forever in heaven and we will walk in the abundant life here on earth. Number two, the prevailing church prioritizes relationships as the most important feature of the kingdom. When Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of his day, they said, so what is the greatest commandment? There were 10 with 614 subsections, but there were essentially 10. Which one of those is the greatest? He said this one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the other is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, there was a vertical aspect to the Ten Commandments. And there was a horizontal aspect to the Ten Commandments, shifting right at Commandment 4, right? The first deal with our vertical relationship with God, and then the, the, the last six are with each other. And Jesus said, you can't separate these one from another. They're, they're, a, they're a complete set. The greatest commandment are these two. <laughs> and he puts them together. He melds the vertical and the horizontal. He says, this is, this is what it's all about. If you don't have it right vertically, we likely won't have it right horizontally in our relationships. If our relationships are floundering, there's a good chance we don't have it right vertically. He says you can't separate them out. These two things are one thing. In fact, he was so adamant about it, he said, look, this is the way the world's going to know that you belong to me. By the love you have, not for a lost and dying world, not for the way you evangelize people, not for the way you go on mission trips. He said, the world will know you belong to me by the love you have one for another in the church, here. He's saying, get it right in here before you take it out there. When we take it out there and we don't even have it right in here, we hurt people out there. So we have to make sure that we're loving each other well in the church. And that can get messy, but it's not optional in the local church and the church universal. I've gone to Kenya eight times. The largest issue in Kenya is tribalism, 42 tribes. They'd rather kill each other than, than get together. And I was preaching there one Easter morning and, and I suddenly realized who models tribalism in the world better than the church? Wow. 
We've got to do a better job of that. Because Jesus said that's how the world's going to know. When we get it right in the church, people outside the church are going to go, wow, I don't know what's going on in that place, but I want what those people have. That's how it's supposed to work. When they see the love for one another that is big enough within the church that it starts to spill outside of the church, that makes people want to come. They want to know what's going on. And folks, we've got to get this right because there's a culture at risk right now. The church has lost its voice to a culture. They don't hate us necessarily, although some do, but by and large, we've just become irrelevant. And I know enough of you to know we're not irrelevant. But what's the world see when they look at the church? Do they look at those people in the church and go, wow, those people must love Jesus? Because that's what Jesus said would happen. Number three, the prevailing church prioritizes joining in the mission of God for the restoration of human beings made in his image. This is the great rescue that Jesus is after, helping people find their way back to God, helping people be healed, helping people live well. He launched his ministry in Luke in the temple using a passage from Isaiah 61. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's like a five-fold charge, right? Anointed me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That was his mission. As his followers, that mission passes on to us. That needs to be our mission. That needs to be kind of how we see it. Jesus quoted that from Isaiah 61, but if I were to sum it up with one sentence from the New Testament, it would be Galatians 5.1, that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that encompasses the good news, that encompasses Freedom, it encompasses the journey to freedom. It encompasses love and relationship. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that's the topic I kind of want to talk about today because in my counseling business, in my life, in every aspect, I know so many Christians that aren't free. They look free. Y'all look free. You look like the freest group I've seen so far today. You look wonderful, by the way. You're all dressed up and shiny. And... Uh, yeah, looks great. What, what don't we know about each other on a Sunday morning, right? What don't we know about the people next to us? Do we ever think, I need to pray for the people around me? I don't know what they're going through. And people are bound up with pain, with sorrow, with struggles, with addictions, behaviors they hate about themselves. And we come here to church, and we hope maybe something will change. And... Uh, how is it that I can love Jesus and struggle so much? That's a question. That's a legit question. People shut down in secret sin. And for so many years, so many churches have told people, look, you just need to love Jesus more. And you're like, really? Because I, I, I thought I loved Jesus. And now you're telling me if I still got this stuff, I mean, maybe I'm not even Christian. I don't know. When we give answers to that, like those to, to hurting people, we just heap despair on them. 
It's like, oh my gosh, I was hoping I could come to a church and maybe get help. And what I got was to be made to feel 100% worse. Folks, Jesus has provided for our freedom. There's hope. There's hope today. No matter what you're struggling with, there's hope today. There's hope in Christ. Our issues become front and center when we dictate to him what we think our freedom should look like. We're going to tell God how I would like to be delivered. How would I like to be delivered? Oh, let me think. Uh, miraculously, that's how I would like to be delivered. I don't want anybody to know what's going on in my life. I don't want anybody to know I struggle with porn. I don't want anybody to know I'm an alcoholic. I don't want anybody to know I spent the mortgage payment gambling over the weekend. I don't want anybody to know that. Lord, can you just take it away? You are, after all, I've read over and over, the God of miracles, are you not? Well, that's a big one. That's trouble. That's hard. It's hard stuff. That's how we want to get out of our stuff. But what if Jesus still guarantees the hope of freedom but says that's not exactly what it's going to look like? I have another plan if you're interested. And its other plan is going to involve other people. <laughs> that's where we usually go, nope, I'm out. I, no, not other people. Nobody else needs to know this. God's with me and you. God's like, I'm not going to keep your secret, right? There, there's a way out for you. So I've spent a bunch of time over the last couple of years reading and learning about an emerging science called interpersonal neurobiology. Big word. Glad I got through it two services in a row without messing it up. Interpersonal neurobiology. It's just how relationships with people affect our brain. Because they affect it in huge, huge ways. And this whole science is emerging, and out of that science is emerging a whole nother science just around the issue of shame. A shame is universal to our condition, to the human condition. Nobody escapes it. Everybody has some. We're born with it. But shame is that voice in your life that says, wow, what a loser. Shame is the voice that every time you fear that you may not be able to step up. Shame's the voice that says, no, you're right, yeah, don't, you're not, you're not gonna be able to do this. Why would you even ask, loser, you know? Nothing's ever gonna be right. And so the feature of shame is that voice, that consistent thing. You know what it is? Every time you mess something up and you call yourself a name, that's what it is. Oh, what an idiot I am, shame. Difference between shame and guilt, right? Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. It's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Holy Spirit brings conviction to us to help us repent of something we've done and be restored in relationship to Christ. Condemnation is something the enemy comes with to assault us at the level of who we are. It assaults our character. You idiot, you'll never get this right. What is the matter with you? But Romans 8, 2 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8, 1, excuse me. Don't tell Pastor Bob I messed that up. Um, so, yeah, uh, this shame thing is huge. Um, Dr. Kurt Thompson, well, two, two leading voices on this issue. Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown, she's a research uh, professor at University of Houston, about 13 years invested in the issue of shame and vulnerability. If you haven't seen her TED Talks, please do. I mean, it's amazing. She's got a, a, a big, long, like, hour message or something on Netflix. It was really profound. 
uh, one of the most recent books I'm thinking of is a book called Daring Greatly. It's, it's very, very good stuff. The other guy is uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson, who wrote two books, one called The Anatomy of the Soul, the other one is called The Soul of Shame. And uh, two weeks ago, it's at the American Association of Christian Counselors in Nashville, Tennessee, World Conference, 7,000 people there. And this is a rising topic. I spent probably five hours in classes with Dr. Kurt Thompson. It's fascinating stuff. Um, and so they've written extensively about this stuff. And when we're stuck in shame, and shame has become our prison, the thing we want the least is the thing we need the most. And this is the way out, according to Thompson. Shame's healing encompasses the counterintuitive act of turning toward what we are most terrified of. We fear the shame that we will feel when we speak of that very shame. But it is in the movement toward another, toward connection with someone who is safe, that we come to know life and freedom from this prison. Healing shame requires our being vulnerable with other people in embodied actions. There is no other way, but shame will always attempt to convince us otherwise. So we know now that our brain governs nine domains, areas of life, not, not the pieces parts of our brain, not the prefrontal cortex, amygdala and all that, but domains of life the brain controls. Shame has a disintegrating effect on our brain. It starts to disassemble it. And we have this voice that says, run and hide, run and hide, run and hide, because if anybody finds out who you are, they won't like you. And we strive for connection with other human beings. And so our greatest fear is fear of disconnection, that you will find out who I really am and you will not like me. So when we put this science that's emerging in the 2000s and we read back into the biblical narrative of Genesis and we see a man and a woman in disobedience to God eat the apple, what did they do? They hide. Fascinating. Already the brain is kind of coming apart. It wasn't the only option, folks. They could have done the na-na-na, we ate the fruit dance. They could have done a bunch of other things, but the response was to hide, and we now know it's a neurological response brought on by shame. Because if God finds out who we really are, he won't like us anymore. Which is not exactly what God said would happen, but it's what they were thinking would happen. So we need other people. This is not optional. We need embodied actions. Actually, don't I need embodied actions to show me anything of God. Like I can read of these concepts of God loving me and having grace and compassion and mercy for me, but where does that become real? Well, for me, like it became real in 2014, I had like massive back surgery, I'm laid up in my house, and people came and embodied what the love of Jesus looks like to me. They brought food, they came to just visit, they took care of me, and it was like because of that time, I understand the love of God in greater ways. And if you've been recipients of grace and mercy and compassion, you've done so through the, through the lives of other people, connecting with your life. It takes human connection. And this is huge for the culture that we live in because we're more connected and less connected than we've ever been all at the same time. We think 
that we're more connected, but we're really not because they are not embodied actions. They're actions between you and an impersonal device, which, by the way, doesn't count. It's messing your life up. Takes embodied actions. In other words, somebody did, did, how many people were here last week or saw the video or listened to the thing? Because it was a good one. Okay, nobody was here. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I asked a question. Um, but somebody last week said, restoration of our culture will lie in the recognition of persons. Wow. That's what we got to get back to. That's all Jesus was ever about, was meeting with people, intersecting with real people in, their, in the midst of their real issues. So, if we're going to get back to a culture that, that is thriving, really, we need to bring personal relationships back to the table. If we're ever going to get free of any of our stuff, we've got to do it in a community of other people. Loving people who are non-critical, non-judgmental. Did anybody ever wonder why AA works? Hello? Because you can walk in the door and say, you know what, I've been clean for 20 years. Last night, uh, I went to the bar thinking I could have one drink with my friend, and he had one drink and went home, and I woke up there this morning. And everybody in the room will say, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. It's church. The fact that no one will judge them and no one will criticize them is the very thing that allows them to be honest and vulnerable. And the church needs to take a lesson from that. The church needs to see that this is how it is. The last thing that guy needed was to be hit over the head with a scripture. The last thing he needed was to be told he did the wrong thing. Oh my gosh, the shame is huge. But he knows there's a place he can go and confess his sins. People will accept him, and that will restart his journey to healing. So what does this look like biblically? In John 11, a story you're all probably very familiar with, Jesus receives word that his good friend Lazarus is sick. Uh, really sick, come right away. He's like, okay, we'll be right there. And then takes a whole nother day before he even leaves. It's like, what are you doing? So I thought this was your friend, right? But, uh, you know, like there was a point, okay? So um, Jesus finally gets underway and gets there. By the time he gets there, Lazarus has died and he's been dead for four days, which is not a random number back, by the way, because there's a reason he took an extra day. Because in the culture of that day, it was believed that the spirit of the dead would hover over the dead for three days. And that spirit could be called back. So lest Jesus be accused of, of performing a cheap trick, he waits till four days. Now there's really no hope because he's really dead. He's dead, dead, okay? In fact... His sister said, uh, he stinks now, okay? So Jesus shows up at the tomb uh, in some versions. Uh, Jesus shows up at the tomb, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. It's putting it mildly. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said on this account, 
I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Is anything weird about that story to you or was it only weird to me? Because I'm thinking Jesus just called a dead guy who's been dead for four days back to life and a little cloth gets in his way. Look, how'd the guy even get out of the tomb? He's probably like bumping off the walls, right? He's got a thing over his face, it said, and he's completely bound. And I'm thinking, Jesus, what is the deal? And here's what I want you to get from this morning. Jesus gave Lazarus life, but not freedom. He was alive, but he wasn't free. He was bound. Jesus' part was the part that only he could play. Only Jesus is going to call a guy back to life that's been dead four days. The other part, the loosing, the unbinding, was up to the community. He said, go, loose him. They have a role to play. You still have a role to play in each other's freedom. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to give you your miracle. It's just that his miracle looks different than the way you thought you would get it. Lazarus is alive, but whatever kingdom gifting he had, he couldn't be expressed because he was bound. So he's alive. He's no use to the kingdom. He's just stuck there like a, a living mummy. And um, until the community helps loose him, then he can regain or rejoin the kingdom community and do the works that God has for him. In our church, our bindings are no longer literal grave clothes. Our bindings are almost always invisible issues rooted in shame. Thompson says, shame is a primary means to prevent us from using the gifts we have been given. Shame shuts us down. Men will self-select out of leadership because if anybody knows me, it would be a disaster. Men, by the way, love big churches because they can get in and out without anybody asking them to do anything. I can go do my church thing, but I don't really want to get too close to doing anything else because I'm disqualified in my heart of hearts. I'm, I'm not okay to do that. So it's big. So Jesus invites the community. Jesus certainly could have done the whole thing. He could have had Lazarus show up in a suit, a tie, looking great like a guy just raised from the dead four days. But he didn't. He said to the community, you have a part to play in this. I so appreciated last week's service, especially at the end when Bob and Bree and Mike were talking. And, uh, you know, Bree really, she, she, was, she was blazing the frontier, telling her story, putting just a little bit of it out there. To have been addicted to pornography, been active in the adult entertainment industry, and probably people were, were falling off their seats and going, church isn't the place for that. Folks, church is the place for that. 
It's the best place for that. It was kind of freeing that she would do that. Because today, many people in the church, perhaps the majority of people in the church, are being held back from their kingdom purpose because they're bound in shame. And as Thompson says, the healing of shame requires us being in authentic community. All these guys are saying this. Thompson, Brown, a growing host of others are emphatic. There's no other way to be loosed from the bondage we find ourselves in except through community. Is it any wonder that there are 59 one another verses in the Bible? Friends, we are hardwired for connection. We can't survive without it. And James tells us, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In other words, community has been the prescription all along, and it's time for the Protestant church to reclaim confession and do it the way the Bible's talking about doing it in a small group of other people who are committed to your freedom and who love you no matter what kind of mud you've marched through in your life. Because we all got our story. And it's not about who's got the worst story. It's never about that. It's how do we come alongside people and help them heal. So what does this mean for the prevailing church? It means that we must begin to have open, honest conversations about our issues and begin to address healing through messaging and what I would love to call redemptive community groups, groups who are intentionally committed to brutal honesty, brutal transparency, knowing that it's the way to health. It isn't a show to see who can make who be the most <laughs> shocked. It's about, this is my story, I can't help it, it's where I've been, but what do we do now? And what comes next is dependent upon whether or not we can get a group of people around us who love us, support us, know our stuff, and are journeying with us anyway. We must be committed to honest conversations even when they focus on the brokenness within the church. It must start here. It's time for the church to lead the culture rather than react to it. It's time for us to start being angry at people who don't know God for not behaving like people who do. We need to get first things first, and we need to get it right in the church first. And it needs to be with how we love each other. I think the time is now. I think we're living in a day where we're, we're on the cusp. We're either going to make a decision to bring our stuff into the light where it can be healed, or we're just going to shrivel back from the culture who Rao views us as irrelevant. So I was blessed to hear Bree talk last week about her own journey and concerning her journey and her topic, one that I work with all the time, I would like to share some statistics that some of you might find hard to believe. Trust me, they're all verifiable, but here's what's going on and here's what's going on in the church. Statistically, 70% of men in evangelical churches are addicted to pornography. 70%? Is that even possible? Well, guess what? We're all carrying little porn stores in our pockets, folks. You don't even have to look for it. It comes and finds you. 
And if you don't have your stuff locked down, all of your electronic devices, it's gonna find you. And it'll find your kids, it'll find your grandkids. It's not going away. Internet's not going away. Nobody's gonna police it. It's here to stay. We have to figure out as people of God how we're gonna to respond to it and what we're gonna do. 70% of men, 50 to 60% of pastors. That strike you as high? Because yeah. it doesn't strike me as high because pastors, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful for how transparent Pastor Bob is up here at times. Most pastors are not. And mostly they're the most shut down people emotionally that you'll ever find because they've been burned before. So I'm not telling anybody my stuff. And when we refuse to put it out there, it just thrives in the darkness and the enemy beats our brains in with it. The next one is 30 to 35% 30 of women, women, now the fastest growing demographic in this field, in this area. And I've been told by people working with women who are addicted that at 35 years and younger, the statistic is more like the men's. So I know some of you with a 20-year-old teaching on this have said, that's just not possible. Women aren't affected the same way men are. Men are affected visually and women are affected emotionally. That's, that's all old, folks. Since the internet, we all take in information the same way now. It's all visual. And so women are the fastest growing demographic. Uh, due to our technology, people all over the Church of Jesus Christ are struggling with sexual brokenness and addiction, and it's time to talk about it. Um, it's interesting, you know, these devices that we have that make our lives so good can also be the poison that kills us. And um, Paul tells us that we are not to be ignorant of the schemes of our enemy. And it's, it's pretty cool, actually, kind of. If you look at that verse in the King James, it says, and we are not unaware of his devices. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's prophetic. Way to go, God. How about that? You know, so uh, this issue is huge. Uh, it's, it, it's an issue that's been part of my story, and I work in my counseling practice and in the ministry with Priority One, primarily with helping guys get free from this. Guys in groups, and they're getting free. And it's a long haul, but for most of them, they've been in this business a long time. And so they're willing to spend a year to get out. And it's an enlightening year and the most freeing year a guy that's addicted could ever spend. So this isn't an issue in the church, in my mind. It's the issue in the church. What else could be affecting that percentage of people in our churches and we're not addressing it? We would be on it in a heartbeat if it were anything other than sexual brokenness, right? But we don't even want to talk about it, as Bree said last week. We don't even mention the word in church. And I'm so thankful that Pastor Bob is not one of those people that shies away from mentioning the word and mention these issues. So, uh, yeah, we're on a journey together. And... Um, to that end, we are building a team of men here at CC Delco committed to freedom for men from sexual bondage. Cecil Morgan has worked in this field in this church for 10 years. But we realize if guys ever want to get clean and start stepping up, we're going to need way more than just one guy in there fighting. And we need guys to come alongside him. We want to establish a leadership team. So I'm asking this morning if there are some guys here 
who have experienced this issue and you have some health in this issue, you would be willing to be part of a leadership team to come out and see me in the table, at the table after the service. Our goal is to have a couple leadership training meetings and then we're gonna be ready to roll out with the first groups for men struggling on January 8th on a Wednesday night, small group night here at CC Delco. We'll, we will be holding the groups offsite, by the way. But we are looking for some guys and we're gonna, we're gonna launch this and our, our dream is that shortly thereafter we will launch groups for women. And we need two groups for women. First, we have every guy that's in the group has a wife who's been betrayed and she's hurt and she's in her own pain and trauma. So we need support groups for those women. Then we also need a group for the women who are themselves caught in sexual bondage, pornography addiction. So we need two groups for the women, primarily one group for the men. So we want to come after this. And um, obviously, you know, lest I've let you out in the church, we're not dealing only with pornography. I mean, we need to openly address and, and form redemptive groups to address issues throughout our church. Wherever people are bound, alcohol, drugs, opioid, drug addiction is, is, is through the charts, off the charts. It's, it's one of the most terrible things to ever hit our time. We've got to address it. We've got to be a safe place for people to come. Broken families, anger, abuse, depression, abortion, post-abortion issues, and whatever else is out there. We want to see the body of Christ set free so that you can live and walk in the fullness of God's plan and purpose for your life so that we will be the prevailing church that assaults the gates of hell and takes ground back from the enemy. I want to close with a video, short video that I want you to watch. And I found this stuff. This, is, this was a fascinating thing. This is a Japanese art form called Kintsugi. And it is the art of taking broken pottery and putting it back together. Let me read you the definition that was there. The process recognizes the history of the object and visibly incorporates the repair into the new piece instead of disguising it. The process results in something more beautiful than the original. In 2 Corinthians 3.7, the Bible talks about how we, as the body of Christ, we house the treasure of God's glory in earthen vessels, plain and ordinary, so that we can't take the credit for the glory. But as earthen vessels, we can get cracked and we can get broken along the way. And sometimes our brokenness overwhelms what God's trying to do in our lives. And God doesn't just smash us to dust and start over. He sends the body of Christ, the community, to lay in the relational gold required for our restoration. And though we may always see the scars, the result will be a life of beauty reflecting the healing power of Jesus and his church. Folks, the prevailing church is the church that loves people enough to not let them stay in their brokenness. Welcome to the prevailing church. We're glad you're here. Amen.